welcome to all of you that are on. Um, Aaron, thanks for joining us. I know over the last almost three years now, I feel like there has been an all-out assault on the Constitution, everything from the First Amendment to, I know we discussed the 14th Amendment as it relates to AB 2098. And, you know, I'm sure everyone knows, but maybe we need a refresher. Uh, the First Amendment protects our religious, our right of religion, speech, press, and the right to petition and assemble. And it seems to me that that particular amendment to the Constitution has been one that's been really under assault. I know we've seen a lot of what we've felt, the government infringement on this, government suppressing um, social media users, government suppressing information, government um, silencing doctors. And now I think we have some pretty damaging evidence to that effect. I know you have a lawsuit right now, and um, I'm excited to jump in and explore that. So with that, Erin, I'm going to turn it over to you, and I'd love for you just to introduce what the lawsuit was about or is about and how you started in this. Yeah, thank you, Laura. Um, and first, I want to just introduce any in the audience who don't know to uh, my friend, Laura Sextro, uh, and the Unity Project, which he runs, which is an amazing um, nonprofit advocacy group here in California. I serve as the chief of ethics at the Unity Project. And <clears throat> Laura mentioned my lawsuit against Assembly Bill 2098, which we talked about in these spaces last week. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a different lawsuit against the federal government on free speech and censorship. But um, the Unity Project has been doing terrific work here in California, which is really sort of the tip of the spear, the bellwether state, where um, various trial balloons have been floated uh, to suppress free speech and medical freedom. And the Unity Project was instrumental in defeating eight out of the 10 uh, bad <laughs> medical bills in the state legislature last uh, legislative season, two of them slipped through. And one of them is the one that I just mentioned that uh, I and a group of other physicians are challenging in federal court. So uh, one of the reasons that we don't have 10 bad laws to contend with and to try to challenge this year uh, is the work of the Unity Project to unite people in California and beyond against bills that would undermine informed consent that would undermine parental rights and freedoms to make decisions on behalf of young children who are not yet old enough to give consent attacks on, uh, on the family uh, in, in various other ways that would undermine parental rights in schools and so forth. So if you don't know about them, you should follow the Unity Project here on Twitter and other social media, um, sign up for their Substack take a look at their podcast, uh, Laura and the whole team there, they're doing really tremendous work. And I think it's work that's impacting the entire country, not just, not just California. Um, they're advising similar um, groups that are sort of on the ground grassroots doing work in medical freedom in other states, and also kind of preventing some of the worst excesses here, where they tend to spring up in California. It's, I think it's very clear that if Assembly Bill 2098 withstands our constitutional challenge and, and stays standing. I don't think it will, um, but if it did, uh, we would see similar bills 
in other states. And so the, the whole nation is actually looking at that case when we got our preliminary injunction halting the application of the law. Uh, it was covered in, I think, 50 media outlets around the country, New York Times, L.A. Times. Uh, it was a it was a major news story. And I think one of the reasons is people outside of California realize that um, it was a kind of trial balloon for uh, to, to see if it would work for similar efforts in other states. So anyway, that's a long winded preface before we get to <laughs> today's topic. But I did I, I do want all of you to know about uh, Laura and about the Unity Project. Um, and if you're wondering, you know, how can I make a contribution? Um, how can I volunteer time? How can I make a financial contribution? Uh, the Unity Project has has room for both. Uh, and so check out their their website um, and follow their work on social media. Okay, so let. Thank you, Aaron. That was fantastic. Well, yeah, you're welcome. She <laughs> and we appreciate she it very much. Say that, I promise you, that's just uh, that's just <laughs> me talking about this organization that that I love. Um, right. So yeah, let's talk about Missouri v. Biden, and maybe I'll just give a little bit of background on this case. Uh, so Missouri v. Biden was filed as as the name of the case suggests by the state attorney generals of Missouri and Louisiana, Eric Schmidt and Tom Landry. Uh, Schmidt, uh, since that case was filed, has since been elected to the Senate. So there's a new state AG in Missouri uh, that's doing also a great job on this case. Um, and then we have Eric Schmidt advocating for free speech and medical freedom now in the U.S. Senate. And this case has uh, five private plaintiffs attached to it, five individuals besides those two states um, that are acting as plaintiffs. And I, I'm one of those. Uh, my colleague, Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, Martin Koldor, formerly of Harvard, now of the Brownstone Institute, uh, are uh, the two other plaintiffs, as well as um, Health Freedom Louisiana, which is a nonprofit group in Louisiana. So actually four, four plaintiffs, uh, the three of us, uh, doctors and scientists, and then uh, Health Freedom Louisiana. And what we are alleging in this case is that not only is, has social media been censoring Americans for uh, their viewpoints on COVID, for expressing um, interpretations of the data or the science, for critiquing various COVID-related public health policies uh, that were uh, disfavored by public health agencies or public health bureaucrats or by government, um, but that the social media companies were in fact doing that under direct pressure from the government. So we are alleging a collusion between the federal government and companies like Twitter, Facebook, or, or Meta, which owns Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram, YouTube, which is owned by Google. So the, these big tech comp companies and social media companies arguably are permitted to censor. I say arguably because there's debate about the law known as Section 230, and there's debate about whether a company as large as Facebook or Twitter should be considered like a public utility um, or whether they should be considered more like a publisher, which would give them the right to, to censor or to edit content. But setting aside those 
those legal debates, no one doubts, and there's really absolutely no debate, that the federal government cannot censor. That's a clear violation of constitutional First Amendment guarantees that, that all Americans enjoy. The government cannot censor, and the government cannot collude with social media companies. The government cannot commandeer or suborn social media companies to become the long arm of its censorship regime. Uh, even if it appears that the government is collaborating with social media and they're just working hand in hand and their public and private interests just happen to perfectly align, that can still be a First Amendment violation under, uh, under precedents set by the Supreme Court. But, uh, and of course, that's, that's the government's defense in this case, in this Missouri v. Biden case. Their defense is, well, we're not actually pressuring social media companies. We're just trying to provide helpful information, like, you know, sending them accounts that they may want to re remove or sending them tweets or other posts that may violate their already existing terms of service. And they find that helpful. And so it's a completely collaborative enterprise and there's no coercion, there's no pressure going on. Well, <clears throat> that's a problem for a number of reasons. One of the problems is just simply the asymmetry of power between the federal government and these companies. These companies obviously have a lot of power. They have a lot of money. The only thing they really fear is government regulation, right? The government is the, the only one with the, ultimately the police powers of the state, the power of the law that could make life more difficult for a company like Twitter or a company like Facebook that really has a, a monopoly on certain markets. Um, they have enormous financial resources. They have enormous power just by virtue of being so, so big and so wealthy and being able to control the flow of information in the way that they do. What they really fear is government regulation. So even the implicit threat, even if it's never explicitly stated as an overt threat of potential government action, uh, would be enough to make these kinds of relationships problematic. But what we've discovered in our case, um, and we've moved to the phase of, of litigation known as discovery, where we haven't gone to trial yet, we're in the the phase where we can request and the, the court can endorse uh, these requests to subpoena information from the government, emails back and forth between social media and big tech, uh, communications, uh, documents, and so forth. And uh, we can request that various defendants in the lawsuit, various government officials be deposed. So this case has made the news a couple of times because um, this was the first time, for example, that Anthony Fauci was deposed and forced to answer you know, difficult questions about his pandemic response and difficult questions about um, possible collusion with social media uh, under oath, under threat of the penalty of perjury. And I can, I can talk a little bit later uh, in the hour about that deposition and what we learned from that deposition. So Fauci was deposed. Um, other uh, less well-known government officials have been deposed and we're still sort of fighting. There's a lot of back and forth at this stage um, with the, the government's lawyers and, and waiting for the court's determination on some uh, uh, permission to depose some other key officials. So one of the things that's happening is 
that the federal government is really fighting like hell to uh, protect Jen Psaki, uh, President Biden's former press secretary, from uh, being deposed in our case. Uh, they really, really do not want Psaki to have to answer any questions uh, under oath. And we're continuing to push because we think that there, she has information that's both relevant to our case and information that other government officials wouldn't necessarily have access to or wouldn't necessarily be able to respond to. So that that's sort of where we are in the in the process on this case. So I did I read a lot about this and was really actually surprised, Aaron, by how much um, information came out that seems incredibly damaging yeah. in the uh, the pro- your discovery process. I was quite surprised between the text messages and the email chains um, that seem to be really the, the, the federal government giving direct um, either instructions or um, laying out coercive acts uh, for these social media platforms in order to get them to suppress free speech. That's exactly right, Laura. So um, you were surprised and we have been surprised Um, Not that the problem actually exists, as we alleged, but by the the sheer scope of the problem that the government social media censorship enterprise uh, runs across, I think at latest count, at least 17 different federal agencies, some of which you've never heard of, um, some of which you have, and and the White House, uh, White White House officials that work directly for uh, the president of the United States. I should say this is not a, a political issue. It's not, it shouldn't be a left-right issue. It's a constitutional issue. Um, and even though we're going after many officials in the Biden administration, uh, these are, many of these people are people that also worked uh, in, in the Trump administration under, under Trump. So this should not be seen as a sort of left-right liberal conservative issue. I, I will say that so far on Discover, we haven't uncovered uh, information that uh, President Trump was directly involved in this censorship, although we have a lot of evidence that President Biden was. And so I, I suppose the case can be framed in uh, in political or partisan terms in that regard. But, you know, we're we're prepared to go after anyone and everyone uh, from whatever party uh, that was involved in this censorship regime. So our interest is not political. Right. Our interest is not in taking down right. one administration or another. Our interest is in getting at the truth of what was happening. And so far, it seems like the truth of the most egregious violations were happening under the current administration. So it's, it's a vast enterprise. And the other thing you mentioned that I'll just comment on Mm -hmm. real quick, Laura, that's absolutely right is, you know, I talked about before, even if these relationships between the government and social media were perfectly sort of collaborative, and there was no overt coercion, it still would be problematic constitutionally. But, but, but the problem is clearly uh, much more obviously co- coercive than that kind of defense would suggest that we have clear back and forth uh, from various White House officials and various other government officials mm-hmm. um, express, expressing their strong, strong displeasure, including hinting at the, 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 the strongest, strong displeasure from, uh, you know, the highest the highest you know, people within the administration sort of alluding to the president is very, very displeased with you, Mr. Facebook, you know, senior vice president. 
for not acting on the information that we're giving you quickly enough. Um, so we see, mm -hmm. interestingly enough, um, that even though, you know, the, the, the people involved in censorship at the social media companies are, by and large, strongly left-leaning, strongly sympathetic to, you know, the concerns of the current administration and their COVID narrative. Even so, right. there was resistance to a lot of this pressure from uh, executives, both at Twitter and at Facebook, and and with constant pressure and, and outright mm -hmm. bullying and intimidation tactics. Quite right. frankly, some of the communications um, from, uh, from a guy named Flaherty, who's sort of head of digital communications, um, in the white house communications between Flaherty and Facebook executives were downright, uh, I would characterize them putting on my psychiatrist hat for a moment as emotionally abusive. Um, sure. you sure. know, really kind of egregiously disgusting and gross. So, so there was no, right. there's no doubt, there can be no doubt at this point that there well, was pressure, that there was overt pressure, that there was, har uh, I would I would argue, harassment by the government mm -hmm. um, on these private entities to do our bidding or else, you know, people with enormous power are going to be very displeased with you and you're not going to like the consequences right. of that. So that, that I think that the government's defense is really falling apart at this at this mm -hmm. stage and we're seeing we're seeing obvious violations of the constitution. It, and I'll just say, if what we allege is true, if, if the court sides in our favor on this case, and, and I think they will, this will be the most egregious violation of First Amendment rights in American history, just in terms of the sh sheer number of instances uh, that constituted constitutional violations. Sorry, that was right. that was a little bit of confusing well, phraseology. But, but previous, you know, before the digital age, First Amendment cases were, you know, someone suing one book publisher for mm -hmm. one or two censorship, you know, right. violations at the behest of the government. Um, right, that Bantam case, yeah. right? This, this here, we're talking about millions of instances mm -hmm. of hundreds of thousands of Americans in terms of their posts being taken down, their videos being censored, their... Well, let, let's talk about that for a second. I'm going to jump in here because um, I, I like that you said that this has nothing to do with, with politics. This is not a, a Democrat, Republican, right, left, uh, where, wherever you fall on the spectrum issue. This is a, an issue that should be concerning to every single American and I know you you were really clear in your book. And for those people who are, who are listening that have not read Aaron's book, I, I continue to say this. It's one of my favorite books. It's probably one of the best written books that I that I've read thus far. Um, I firmly believe this should be in every high school curriculum. But, you know, you you took a pretty deep dive in your book on topics like the First Amendment and, and why. Um, and how that correlates to medical freedom and, and the landscape, landscape that we've been dealing with over the last almost three years now. And so talk to me a little bit about the dangers of what we've seen um, and why this case is so vitally important yeah. as it relates to the infringement on First Amendment. Yeah. So thank you. That's an excellent question. Thank you for that. Thank you for plugging the book. The, the book title is New Abnormal. <laughs> A uh, little shameless self-promotion here. Uh, the new abnormal: the rise of the biomedical security state. And you can 
you can find it at any online book publisher. It's on Audible and Kindle and all that stuff. So, um, so why is the First Amendment important? Well, previous constitutional First Amendment cases, uh, the court has made clear that, that the right of free speech is not just for, important for the person who is doing the speaking and prevented, you know, prevented from saying what he or she wants to say. So, in other words, this case is important, not just for the people who actually were censored on social media. That's bad enough. But in addition to that, um, the First Amendment right to free speech is also a right on the part of the listener to be able to hear different viewpoints. So free speech is important, not just for the people who are posting on Twitter or Facebook. Maybe you come on Twitter just to follow people. Maybe you go on Facebook just to just to read the news and, you, you know, you don't post or you only post rarely and none of your posts have ever been taken down. OK, but your First Amendment rights may have still been violated in a sense, because if censorship was happening and only one side of debates about COVID or other uh, other issues were allowed to be heard, then you didn't have access to uh, nuanced or accurate information. You, uh, what happened during the pandemic, for example, is that very often there was, uh, particularly if you were only watching uh, or listening to uh, legacy media, I don't call them mainstream media anymore because I don't think they're actually mainstream, uh, but legacy media <laughs> I, I organizations, agree. Um, then you only, you only heard one side of a contentious debate and it was presented as though there was only one side to the story. Um, and it was presented as though there was a scientific consensus on things where there wasn't, in fact, a scientific consensus. It's just that one side of that debate was suppressed. And where there's a debate and there's not a consensus, Americans have the right to hear both sides of that debate so that you can make up your own mind and, and make your own judgments about which arguments you find most compelling, which um, which. Uh, authorities or speakers or so-called authorities you find most credible or most trustworthy. So, so the First Amendment right is important for a free society, not just so people can just, you know, say what comes into their head without being slapped down, but precisely for the purpose of public deliberation and debate on complex issues that are impacting everyone. Um, so that's, that's one important aspect of, of a case like this. It's also important for the progress of science. And I, I, I like to say just very clearly, science and censorship are incompatible. And anyone who has experience with doing science or understand anyone who understands how science actually works will intuitively understand this because science is not a collection of conclusions that is set in stone and unassailable and can't be challenged. Um, when, when you have someone getting on TV and saying, the science says, capital T, you know, capital S, mm -hmm. trademarked, uh, and I represent the science, you're not dealing with a, a real scientist and you're not probably dealing with real scientific conclusions. You're dealing with somebody in the grip of an ideology, which I call scientism, which is different from science. Science is a set of methods for investigating the natural world. 
and it involves generating hypotheses, basically conjectures, um, you know, examining evidence rigorously, uh, trying to draw conclusions, but always remaining open to new evidence and new conjectures and new efforts to refute those conjectures. It's an ongoing debate. It's a conversation. You take a group of 12 scientists who are all working in the same area of science and you put them in a room together. What do they do? They're going to debate endlessly, actually. That's what scientists do at scientific gatherings. They debate, um, you know, the particular methods used in this study or, um, you know, the upshot of the evidence on this question as a whole. Science is an ongoing, ever-evolving conversation. That's why I say science and censorship are incompatible because censorship attempts to either ordain a, a particular person or a group of persons as the final arbiter of truth or the final authority on science. Or it tries to say, well, there's a, there's a scientific consensus, supposedly, and, and we're going to fixate the current scientific consensus as definitive or unassailable or something that can't be challenged. That's what censorship does. Um, and once you have that in place, well, the progress of science comes to a grinding halt. Science cannot proceed under those circumstances. Right. So, Aaron, you know what I found to be really, um, I think, dangerous, and it touches on what you're just talking about, and I read about this in some of the, the documents that were giving overviews of this case, is that I think suppression of early treatment protocols, suppression of the dangers of the vaccine, suppression of the dangers of protocols like use the use of remdesivir yeah. and um, ventilation, or excuse me, being, being on a ventilator and intubated, that led to the unnecessary injury and death of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, in my opinion, around, around the world. And what I found to be ironic was, you know, they cited that they needed to some of the some of the senior leaders in these um, so social media platforms, in particular the the gentleman who was who was answering questions um, in the in the hearing that jo uh, Josh Hawley just uh, participated in, cite they cited that they engaged in this course of action with in conjunction with the federal government to protect. Uh, human beings. I find that to be incredibly ironic. Mm -hmm. And that is a root at the root of why suppression of, of, of the First Amendment can be so dangerous. That's right. Pe people who want to censor throughout history always have a justification that it's for your good or it's for the good of the people. Um, that I know better what can and cannot be said. And therefore, I should be empowered to decide what can and cannot be said, because if we just leave it to people's own judgment, um, they're going to mess it up. Right. Uh, they, they, they don't know enough uh, to, uh, to to know what's good for them. Number one, that's incredibly condescending. Um, I, I think most Americans recognize that, OK, I may not be an expert in epidemiology or virology. I don't understand all the science of the pandemic as well as some people. So there, there is a role for expertise. Um, and I'm, I'm certainly willing to learn, willing to listen to people who are purported to be experts. Um, but I, 
I, I keep telling people who have been subjected to this, listen to the experts propaganda, uh, you know, for three years, that uh, that doesn't mean that you outsource your common sense. It doesn't mean you outsource your rationality or your intuition or your logic, right? So yeah, you may not be an expert in virology, but you can spot a logical contradiction. You can, you can see very clearly if the so-called expert talking head on the TV is flatly contradicting this week what he said last week without giving you any explanation about why he changed his mind. Um, sure. You know, so, and I, uh, so, and I think that, that there's, I mean, we, we, as the American people, I think are intelligent enough to decipher between that type of language and language that actually does violate the constitution. Right. So like language that would say would incite violence. Yeah or language that's actually threatening. Yeah, that's right. Versus language that is clearly uh, informational coming from a place of whether it's uh, maybe a doctor or a scientist that is engaged in some type of trial of, of specific protocols versus threatening uh, or, or um, language that would incite some type of violence. Well, that's exactly right. Um, so let's talk about free speech rights. Um, free speech rights under the U.S. Constitution are not absolute. The court has recognized that. Um, so there, there are a very few extremely narrowly defined limitations on free speech. So um, obscenity is not uh, considered in all circumstances permissible free speech. Um, uh, things like child pornography obviously are not permissible free speech under the First mm -hmm. Amendment. Um, so uh, there are limitations in, in regards to pornography and obscenity. There are limitations in terms of things that you could say. And really, that is that is limited to direct incitement to violence against identifiable individuals or groups. Right. So mm -hmm. I do not have a First Amendment constitutional right to get on this Twitter space and tell all of you that you should go and physically assault person X or people who belong right. to religion Y or group Z. Okay, that's not mm -hmm. constitutionally protected speech. The, pr the problem that we're seeing now, though, and you sort of alluded to this, Laura, um, in, in, in saying that, you know, ordinary Americans can make these appropriate distinctions, which is exactly right. But what we're seeing now is that there's a push on the part of the enthusiasts of censorship to expand the notion of uh, physical harms to more broader forms of harm. In other words, um, look, if you tell people uh, that the vaccine has safety problems with it or potential side effects, you may cause them not to get vaccinated and then they might get COVID and they might die and dying is a physical harm to them. So we should be able to mm -hmm. suppress your free speech. No, sorry. Uh, no legal precedent for that interpretation of uh, uh, speech that incites to, to violence. Um, and harms, harms are, you know, again, expanded by these advocates of free speech to include various psychological and other, other you know, so-called medical harms. The Constitution has, has never um, proscribed or prohibited speech on the basis of those broadly construed 
uh, interpretations of harm. Again, the advocates of censorship always justify their censorship in terms of preventing harm to people, right? We know what's best for you. And if, we, if you don't allow us to suppress the speech of certain people, then harm will result, right? That's mm -hmm. always been the supposed justification for free speech infringements. Um, so we have to be very, very wary, wary of those kinds of arguments. We have to recognize that the limitations on free speech um, under the U.S. Constitution are uh, the very few extremely limited exceptions that I just outlined and that the harm exception is direct physical harm to an identifiable person, incitement for um, violence in, its, in the literal, literal sense of that term. Can you hear me okay, Aaron? Yeah, getting some background noise, so maybe maybe you can mute me. I am mute, too. It's crackly. <laughs> it's crackly. Um, uh, would it be all right, all right if I jumped in here to say a couple of words? Yeah, we have Jeffrey Tucker Absolutely. On. I'm ha happy, to, happy to let you speak, Jeffrey. Yeah, um, Aaron, I just wanted to say just a couple of points. One on the point about expertise. I... Thinking back in those sort of dark days um, when the lockdowns began, there was an overwhelming sort of instruction that we got from the civic, civic culture, which was, if you're not a properly credentialed expert with tremendous amounts of knowledge and verifiable degrees on this precise topic, namely epidemiology and immunology, um, then you really should not speak. You have no right to speak. You have nothing to say that's worth listening to, and probably everything you say is going to be wrong. And that was definitely the ethos. And that went on for months. That was an extremely important sort of turning point because um, the, I, you know, there were people who had been studying things like constitutional law or economics or political philosophy or psychology um, or just regular people who might have thought, hey, it's maybe not a good idea to close the gyms if we're going for public health. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Maybe it's the, best, the best thing is not to uh, uh, shut the churches, you know. But I, it, it, with the intimidation by expertise was the overwhelming ethos at the time. Uh, I mean, it went so far as the national media going on a wild, it wasn't just, uh, you know, the attack on super spreader events, you know, which was something I remember the New York times during spring break ran, you know, a 9,000 word article on the evil of spring breakers in Florida, you know, and I, I read through the whole thing and I couldn't find any moment in the entire article where they actually named, um, some harm coming to anybody. Actually, it was the strangest right. thing. It's just like, yeah, a uh, super spreader event is is automatically evil, and so, uh, but you know, during that time, uh, I I decided to really bone up on 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 this you know the subject of of epidemiology, uh, virus spread, and um, and uh, you know the relationship between uh, 
pandemics and 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 the medical science behind it. And I, I read, you know, first of all, so, you know, Sinatra Gupta's book, which you can easily download for, I think, free on Amazon, which is one of the greatest tutorials in the sort because I blasted through that and that shaped everything that I believed. And then after that, I read Cell Biology for Dummies, you know, and I said, well, that's pretty good. I got through the Dummies book. And so then I read, yeah, right. And so then I read a first year um, a medical student text, which you can also download from Amazon, give me a break, on viruses. So I felt like, all right, I got this, all right? But of course, I had no credentials in the subject. I just, you know, developed some knowledge. But it was interesting how few people in my realm, which is economics and political theory and that kind of thing, even bothered to do that much. Um, and I think part of the reason was that they just felt like, well, I guess I'm not part of the class of proper experts i have nothing to say about this therefore i should be silent and go along and at the same time and this is what slightly puzzles me as i look back about this whole thing and i'm sure you had you and i didn't know each other at the time so you know uh, there's no way we could have connected probably otherwise but i had an overwhelming sense that everybody was intimidated into silence. Now, I posted that on Twitter um, yesterday, something like, I had a sense that if people had spoken out properly uh, uh, against these lockdowns and everything, that we could have made a real dent in public life, but people didn't speak out because they're intimidated by expertise. So therefore, but, but a lot of people responded to me. They said, you know, I tried to speak out but the censorship was so intense that I couldn't get a hearing. So I, I wonder what the relationship between those two things is. Yeah. You know, on one hand, yeah. people who, who, who had platforms that should have said something went silent because they were scared, not just of the virus, but scared of cancellation, scared of the media, scared of being facing the uh, uh, disapproval from their fellows, you know, saying, you don't know anything about this subject, you shut up. Uh, There's that. But there was also the deliberate, uh, as far as we know, right, deliberate sort of shutdown of alternative voices. So both those things uh, uh, worked together in ways I can't entirely sort out. So cowardice and censorship, right? I mean, it's a vicious uh, combination. And what it left was... Uh, was the impression that the average person had that there's only one way to think about this. Right, uh, right. Uh, don't sing at church because that's just yeah. evil. Uh, don't um, have more than 10 people in your house. Don't drive across the border and back again on the same day because that would make you a disease better. Walk down the wrong direction in a grocery store yeah. aisle. And, and you're likely to kill somebody, right? Yeah. <laughs> Overwhelming. No, this is a, and that, yeah, this is a, yeah go this ahead. Is a really good question, Jeffrey. And let me, by the way, let me just introduce all of you to my friend, Jeffrey Tucker, the uh, founding president of the Brownstone Institute. And Jeffrey, um, Jeffrey's another person you should be following on Twitter, but also check out Brownstone's website because they have courageously um, bucked the trend toward censorship and suppression and um 
and they publish uh, some really excellent, uh, some really excellent articles from really excellent people, and they've they've been a key to getting unheard voices out there and giving them a platform to speak. I'll, and I'll, uh, I'll say so. That as well, Aaron um, Jeffrey. It's great to meet you. You and I have not met before, but um, I followed the work that you do. And for those listeners don't know or not somehow following the brownstone you should be because it's it's really vital information that's getting out there yeah well thank you both for saying that i appreciate it very very much i mean we have the beautiful thing that i'm seeing these days is this formation of this new how would you say it like infrastructure mm-hmm. of society yeah. i mean you just parallel like, institutions yeah yeah, it's, and it's beautiful. I mean, how many new institutions and intellectuals and voices yeah. uh, have we seen being born? So I'm just thrilled to be part of it. Well, thank, thank you. you, and thanks for jumping on. Let me comment a bit on your on your observations, your question, Jeffrey, about the relationship between censorship and the kind of follow the experts mode of political discourse. So uh, I think several things happened very early on in the pandemic. One is that follow the experts allowed politicians to abdicate responsibility for decisions that were inescapably political and frame them as though they were obviously and only scientific. And here's what I mean by that. So follow the science usually means pick one or two scientists with you know, their own limited perspectives, which all scientists have, and uh, simply do whatever they say. But let's let's take the two most basic epidemiological facts about COVID, which, by the way, were known very early in the pandemic by March, April of 2020. Uh, We knew the infection fatality rate was 0.2 percent from the Santa Clara study done by uh, a colleague uh, of of ours, uh, Jay Bhattacharya and Johnny Onidis at Stanford. So the initial two to three percent infection fatality rate. that was projected by the WHO was wildly exaggerated. Two or three percent is a terrifying number. Zero point two percent is concerning, but but not terrifying. And the second most basic epidemiological fact about COVID was the age gradient. The fact that healthy children do not die of COVID. The vast majority of that zero point two percent that succumbed to the illness were already over the age of 70. Uh, the, the average age of death from COVID was greater than the average lifespan in the United States. So frail elderly individuals that also already had comorbidities uh, and that could succumb to a virus like influenza or even a common cold could have been a tipping point. Those were the people that tended to, to die uh, because of COVID or with COVID as a significant contributing factor. So those are two basic scientific facts. But what to do with those basic scientific facts is an inescapably political decision. Uh, should we try to protect everyone from COVID? Should we try to do focus protection and protect only those older people or the people at higher risk? Uh, if so, how should we protect them? And when you start asking those questions, I say they're inescapably political because they involve um, lots of different scientific considerations, just you know, besides how many COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths are we seeing. Um, they involve things like if we lock down or if we close school, uh, what are the economic, psychological, sociological, developmental, cognitive, emotional, behavioral consequences of an intervention like that? 
Um, and so the, the expertise of people from all of those dom domains is necessary to uh, try to make a, a prudential decision about a question like that. And at the end of the day, you could have all the scientific information in the world um, and there's going to be a thousand other imponderables and it's going to inescapably be a political decision that requires prudence and judgment and probably the give and take of political compromise and ongoing reassessment. Instead of that, we got, you know, one chart or one graph. COVID case counts are going up. Therefore, we have to follow the science. Therefore, X, Y, and Z. You know, we're going to lock down. We're going to close schools. We're going to mandate masks for everyone. Everyone has to get the jab, whatever. So it was a way of abdicating responsibility um, and pretending that a decision that was inescapably political was something else, right? Hey, you know, the lockdowns did a lot of harm. Yeah, but I was just following the experts or I was just quote unquote following the science. Um, but it was also a power move. It was also a way for politicians to say uh, that my judgment here is unassailable because who wants to challenge the science? Right. Who wants to be a science denier or a covid denier? So I could very easily smear anyone who criticized my policies as being backwards or ignorant or anti-science. It also disempowered average Americans, uh, because if it's an inescapably political decision, well, in a democracy, Americans have the right to give their input. Right. And to talk about how this decision is impacting me personally or my family or the people that I know or my small business or whatever. Um, and that's precisely what was shut down in those, uh, I was going to say in those early days of the pandemic, but in fact, throughout the pandemic, um, through the uh, follow the experts kind of framing of things, and which is, which is incredibly condescending to the average American. And it's, it's admirable, Jeffrey, that you did some extra legwork to get up to speed on viruses and contagion and this pathogen and so forth. That's great. It would be great if more Americans did that. Um, but even if Americans didn't do that, uh, they still have a vote. They still have a voice. They, they still have um, life experience, which matters. They still have logic, common sense, and prudential judgment, which should be taken into account. So don't let anyone take that from you. Um, don't let anyone rob you uh, of your legitimate sovereignty which um, which in, in this country uh, under the Constitution still belongs to we the people. Uh, and so we didn't then run around the Constitution under the declared state of emergency. We bracketed constitutional rights, including, as we have been talking about in this space, the, the right of free speech. Um, and I think the suppression of free speech uh, naturally followed from the government suppression of free speech. Um, that we're uncovering in the Missouri v. Biden case, and that's also been uncovered in the Twitter files, if you've been following that story. Everything coming out of the Twitter files has, has confirmed uh, what we have seen in the documents on discovery in Missouri v. Biden. Uh, so that's just, those are just additional pieces of information confirming uh, and strengthening the case that we're making in the lawsuit. Uh, but I think that censorship followed almost naturally from that initial political stance that disempowered um, everyday Americans uh, that chose one set of government appointed experts uh, to be a sort of uh, authority that couldn't be questioned in the name of, of science and that silenced the voice, uh, not only of, of um, everyday Americans, but of other credible uh, scientists and doctors 
and experts who were coming to different conclusions on matters of prudential judgment, on matters of public policy. And Aaron, I also think that, you know, you're touching on something with regard to other di- uh, doctors and scientists. You know, so this suppression of, of free speech and information, it, it's also led to what we touched last week, which was um, a violation of informed consent. Um, That's right. Through many different aspects. I think Dr. Ryan Cole is also listening and um, he's I see certainly Ryan. Let's, uh, let's pull him up in case he wants to comment on this. Uh, Ryan, we're talking about medical freedom and free speech and um, and the Missouri v. Biden lawsuit that's challenging government censorship of government sponsored censorship of free speech. And and the plaintiffs yeah. in Missouri v. Biden, by the way, um, were, were all doctors and scientists and and most of mm-hmm. what we're doing in this case is focused on the censorship of COVID related uh, speech right. and cr- critique of, of COVID policy or, or medical policy. But we're also uncovering well, in this case that that censorship regime was being deployed for other purposes, um, whether it's the election, um, issues ranging from abortion um, to gender ideology and, and so forth. So this conversation is focused well, on I, COVID, I, but... But the censorship machine was censoring uh, people on other topics as well, as, as we're discovering. Sure, sure. It's, it's happening in, in very large part against across. Unfortunately, like what we started this call out by, unfortunately, it's, it's happening in large part across the, polit- across, excuse me, the political spectrum. But as it relates to informed consent, and, and I'd love to get, you know, your everyone, you know, uh, Aaron, Jeffrey and Ryan, your feedback on this. But I think it's it's been used as a tool to confuse the American people. Um, and, and I know as an example, President Biden has stated that on May 11th, the state of emergency will be over. And we also know that um, that does not necessarily mean that the EUA that's being used for these vaccines will go away. And I think there's a lot of people that are operating under the premise that these are now FDA approved vaccines. It's a very confusing um, sleight of hand, I guess, if you will, how the government is presenting this and censoring um, information. Yeah, that's right. Hey, Ryan, Ryan here real quick, if you don't mind. Jump in, Ryan. Uh, Many people have heard my joke. You know, all doctors and scientists agree when you censor the ones who don't. But that's the tragedy in all of this. And, and informed consent is absolutely gone when you censor those of us who are trying to share the actual science, the harms associated, the risks associated. And there's so much documentation at this point, and even the government agencies have acknowledged the harms that are happening, be it myocarditis, et cetera, et cetera, clotting, you name it. And yet people still don't get that fully uh, that full informed consent as related to, you know, these experimental products. And you bring up a great point in terms of the EUA even continuing when technically it's fascinating to think that we're still even under an emergency. And, you know, we had that death ticker early on and now you can't even get the data on how many people are in the ICU or dying from COVID because the numbers are so low comparatively now. So it's, it's this shifting narrative. And I think the, the, bigger, the bigger game that we're up against is just watching the play of, of shifting narrative constantly. 
and and what we are or aren't allowed to say, quote unquote, that that's the problem is this whole construct that we have a constitution, a First Amendment, yet really we don't. And, and what was fascinating to me, too, if you go back and look at 2012, when the Smith-Munt Act uh, allowed propaganda against the American people, we usually use that as a nation overseas. And the agencies and the change in the law under Obama allowed the Smith-Munt Act to propagandize the American people. And so we're up against our own government and and really need to you know, in the halls of Washington, change the, the laws again, reverse these things that have happened because we're losing a nation and right right and bright daylight in front of us, it's all happening. So I'm, I'm glad that you guys are having this uh, space and discussing these critical issues. Science is science and science isn't done by consensus. And not everybody's always going to agree, but if you can't have a discussion about pros and cons, risks and benefits, then people are harmed. And I think that's the greatest tragedy in all of this. Over, thank you. Yeah, well, well said. Um, so let me introduce my friend and colleague, Dr. Ryan Cole, who's been a voice of reason, sanity, tremendous courage under tremendous pressure um, uh, during the entire pandemic. Uh, Dr. Cole is a pathologist. Both he and I testified at the Senate back in January of last year. Um, giving another perspective on uh, COVID policies and, and COVID issues. So definitely uh, follow Ryan, keep up with his work. Um, he's, he's, a, he's, just a, he's a real physician. There, there are a lot of physicians out there who are behaving like hogs in a machine. Um, and, and Ryan is one of the few really courageous doctors um, that not only cares enough about his own patients to do the right thing for his own patients, but cares enough about everyone's everyone else's patients, all of you, uh, to speak out publicly, which, you know, takes a whole other level of professional risk and, and courage. So um, anyway, great to have Ryan here with us. I, I just want just to, just to make people aware of how the censorship regime is actually operating on the ground, um, because I talked about our documents in Missouri v. Biden and the Twitter files are uncovering just how vast the censorship regime is. But I also want to comment just on the micro intrusive level at which it was operating. So it wasn't just that you had some government agency reaching out to social media saying, please censor anything questioning the safety and efficacy of vaccines. I mean, that would have been bad enough. Going beyond that, they, were, they had teams of people working around the clock 24 seven to find and tag specific posts. And then there were communications going to social media companies. Why hasn't so-and-so's account been removed from Twitter, right? Why is Dr. Cole, or why is Cariotti still on Twitter? Um, you know, we're really angry about this and you better do something. Or, you know, why has this specific post not been taken down? So th that, is the, that is the micro level at which this censorship regime was operating. Another discovery that we made from uh, the documents uh, that we got on this case was that Meta, which is the company that owns Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, was censoring content not only on Facebook and Instagram, which is was not surprising, but they were also censoring content that was being shared on WhatsApp. And if any of you use WhatsApp, you know that it's it, it 
at least it appears to be a private text messaging app where you can you can send texts to friends and family and it advertises itself as secure and end-to-end encrypted so you might ask well if facebook if it's encrypted and facebook can't see the content of the texts that i'm sending to my family and friends or to this group chat um, how could they censor it well they can see uh, links that you share and they can see attachments that you send. And so they were doing things like if you were sharing a link with your family to an article written by Jeffrey Tucker or Cariotti or Dr. Cole or whoever, um, you know, that had been flagged as quote unquote misinformation, they would limit the number of times that you could share it. They would limit the number of times that it could be sort of forwarded, you know, from, from one share to the next. Um, and so uh, t- to the degree that the technology enabled, these companies were even censoring things that, that you or, or I or any ordinary person would mistakenly believe were private communications. So it's not just the, the stuff that you're posting publicly on Instagram or WhatsApp or Twitter that, that you think, you know, anyone who's on these platforms should be able to see or anyone who's following me should be able to see. You know, it's quite public. Um, but the censorship was reaching into um, down into very micro level management and down into even apps that most people would um, mistakenly regard as highly private. And this, uh, if this isn't a disturbing trend to all Americans on both sides of the aisle, I, I'm not, you know, I'm just not sure what would be. Um, I mean, to me, this was, this was, uh, this was extraordinarily alarming and kind of shocking. And when I started telling people this, they, they literally didn't believe me um, that, that censoring censorship was happening on WhatsApp. You know, I think what, what's interesting as well, Aaron, is in addition to the censorship that happened, it also led to a secondary self-censorship in terms of how those of us who are trying to get the word out, even self-censored, yeah. oh, can I say this, can exactly. I phrase it this way? And so there was that horrible secondary um, side effect of self-censorship and and knowing you want to say something, but yet having to be almost too metered in the way one wants to express themselves in order to get that message across. Yeah, that's a really important point, Ryan, that it has a chilling effect on everyone, not just the people that are booted from the platform. But, you know, you see, oh, you know, so-and-so got kicked off of Twitter or so-and-so's video was taken down from YouTube. I'm just not going to post stuff on that topic. I'm just, I'm just going to be extra careful not to run afoul of the censor. So it has a profound effect. Yeah. Far beyond the specific content that's, that's censored. Um, it's been a great conversation, everyone. I have to run. I would love it if Uni Project and uh, Jeffrey and Ryan <laughs> wanted to stay on and continue the conversation. Maybe pull up some sure. some questions from the audience, Laura. But um, I need I need to jet. I'm here. happy. I'm happy to stay on. Uh, yeah, not great. Great. So thank you all for being here um, and uh, and for listening in on the conversation. You can. Uh, I don't know if this has been recorded, but hopefully, and you can share the recording. It is. Share the recording. It with is. Friends. Push it out there on we will. social media. And it probably will be censored on Facebook, but hopefully not on Twitter. So so that's cool. <laughs> um, yeah. Thanks, everyone. And uh, um, appreciate, thanks, appreciate Aaron. you coming on and, and, and your thanks. support. 
Thanks for all that you're doing. I think this is a vitally important piece of, of legal action that you're engaging in. So thank you for being the tip of the spear. And uh, we'll talk soon. Jeffrey and Ryan, if you guys are willing to stay on, I would be happy to continue the conversation um, about, you know, we started the conversations intent. The, the intent of this Twitter Spaces event was to talk about uh, what's happening as it relates to free speech and what we've seen over the last three years. And um, but I think we can go just about anywhere you guys want. I know you guys have both done amazing work. Uh, I did see a question in the chat. Let me see if I can if I can read it here. And I don't know. Um, the question is, do you believe that here in Brazil, the new communist administration wants to inoculate all children, even newborns? They want to obligate everybody to take the inoculation inoculation this month. And we don't have free speech anymore. Um, I don't necessarily know if that's a question, more more of a comment, but I, I would open that up and say, uh, Ryan or Jeffrey, do you guys want to tackle that? Uh, yeah, let me just, uh, that's a very intense question. And it's, you know, uh, alarming in some sense. Um, I've been thinking a lot, if you wouldn't mind my sharing this uh, recently, about something, uh, I guess you would call it sort of political sociology. Um, when all this stuff started unfolding, I was by myself, you know, myself just outraged by the lockdowns, especially, and um, and then the masking requirements. So those two made me crazy, and it especially made me crazy that it didn't seem to be making everybody else crazy. <laughs> you know, I was I was going nuts. As I think back over the last three years, there seemed to be a turning point um, with the vaccine mandates that I'm not sure when they were first imposed because uh, at some point in the Biden administration, it was, I don't know when the very first mandates were imposed. Uh, maybe it's it it the spring of 21. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but that seemed to be a kind of turning point where the censorship stopped working, where the controls kind of fell away, when uh, the public anger really started to form this new civic culture, you know, when when everything just went, when, when the, if, if you want to believe that the ruling class sort of, you know, uh, uh, brought, brought about this uh, hegemonic sort of impositions, when that all began to collapse. And I was trying to figure out why that is. And, I, and my mind went back to, and I don't have the history entirely right, but the Vietnam War had been waging for some years uh, in, in a sort of horrible way before the conscription came along. And when the conscription came along, when it started affecting people's actual bodily autonomy, where you could just be pulled out of college and, and thrown into some weird foreign country to kill and be killed, that's what gave rise to the anti-war movement. That's what sort of finally uh, caused a whole generation to say, I've had it, uh, we're not going to take any more. Um, uh, the, 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 the draft riots started, the campuses exploded. It, it defined a whole generation. And I was thinking that there's a way in which the vaccine mandates that sort of grab you by the arm, shove the needle in, take your potion, you don't know what it is, but government says it's good. Uh, big farm makes money from this. Uh, just trust the experts. It's going to protect you against something you're not afraid of. 
and watching that needle sort of pierce the skin, you know, and the expert standing over you while you're sitting in the chair, and you're having to do this in order to access public accommodations to go to the restaurant, go to the bar, go to the theater, travel. Um, that was, in a way, I wonder if that was the equivalent of conscription for this generation. That was the thing that that turned the corner because they're actually attacking your body. Up to that point, there's a way in which you could sort of consider the whole thing a little bit uh, abstract. You know, it's true I have to stay home. I can't really go out. Uh, I have to wear this dumb mask. It's an inconvenience. I feel like it's dumb. But, but it wasn't quite the sort of existential threat, you know, uh, to to your personhood that the vaccine mandate uh, became. And I and and thinking back on it, I, I, first of all, I'm curious what you think about that analogy. And if the analogy holds up, uh, what it means is that that uh, the, the vaccine mandate itself is represents could represent a sort of um, new era, an unforgettable uh, sh uh, paradigm shift in um, American public life and uh, public life of the world. I mean, that's what the comment from Brazil, you know, represents really way, like a level of fury mm -hmm. that I wish had been there for lockdowns, but wasn't. But right. eventually came with the vaccine mandates. And I'll, I'll stop there. But and just to note very quickly that joining us on this space is Father John Noggle, who writes for the Brownstone Institute. If you haven't read his work, oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> I can I can uh, list him as a speaker if I can find uh, well, him he, here? <laughs> he's just like, there's um, else. I mean, he's written he's written an entire th <laughs> uh, theology of uh, COVID lockdowns. If you can imagine such a thing, the guy is, is sees sees everything and knows everything. But anyway, I'll just. But anyway, I'd be curious about your thoughts on my uh, analogy between uh, conscription, a, Viet a Vietnam draft, mm -hmm. and and the vaccine mandate. I, I, yeah, I think you're definitely on to something. And what I would, would say is I would take it a step further, though, and say that when they started to mandate that children be vaccinated, you know, I've always said that, um, unfortunately, people were subjected to these terrorist tactics, right? They, they had these terrorist tactics forced down their throats of saying, in order to go to work, you must become vaccinated. And they had, of course, um, mainstream media. And again, I much like Aaron says, I'll say that cautiously um, because I don't know how mainstream it is anymore uh, saying, you know, we're all in this together. And um, a lot of those, I, I call them kind of nauseating mantras that people started to adopt. But then all of a sudden people started saying, wait a minute, in order to have our children engage in mainstream society, People kind of begrudgingly went along with the whole vaccine thing because they've got to put a roof over their head, put it, put food on the table. But then all of a sudden you went so far as to say, in order for someone's child to engage in mainstream society, they must become part of this grand experiment. And I think that's where we started to see people um, saying, pushing back and, and to your point, kind of correlating this to this experiment that happened in, in the Vietnam War. Um, you know, and I also I have another analogy as well, Jeffrey, for for the Vietnam War. I always say that, you know, what happened to our children, in particular, for whatever reason, the, the adolescent population, over the last really the first two years here, we were locked down, 
was akin to something that we saw POWs go through in, in the Vietnam War, right? Mm, you, mm. you put them in a box, you socially isolate them, and you break yeah. the human spirit. And yeah. so we did to, I shouldn't say we, the government did to our, in particular, adolescent population, what we saw POWs go through in the Vietnam War. So I think, sadly, there, there seems to be a lot of correlations between what right. we experienced at that time and what we're seeing right now played out in the, in the human population. Right. Yeah. I think that's a great, both of your analogies are great. And, and I think what we, what we're battling is a war of language. I mean, the whole construct that this is a vaccine is still appalling to me because it's an experimental modality and experimental therapy and it's it's an it's absolutely investigational according to the eua and and to see how much of society adopted it because the word vaccine was used oh you know we all got childhood vaccines it's a vaccine no and and this yeah it's almost a stockholm syndrome uh, in terms of how we've acquiesced to the government saying, oh, here, this is good. You must do this. Okay. And everybody's compliant. And I like Jeffrey's analogy of, of Vietnam because back then, think of that protest movement. Think of the amount of individuals that said, no, you know, this is against our moral and ethical construct. We're going to say something. We're going to do something. We're going to fight back. And I look at all the protests that happened in, in Europe, like in Austria, when the government there mandated for their people and people like Dr. Maria Hubner Mog, you know, led tens of thousands of people marching in the street. And of course, you know, we didn't see it in our media because, and I don't call it mainstream, I call it legacy media because they're not mainstream anymore. They're obviously a propaganda arm of either companies or governments. But to watch the spirit of protest and freedom in other parts of the world and see it so lacking within our complacent society uh, in the States has been really mind-boggling to even get one's head around the construct that we don't have that spirit of revolution or of resistance or of protest. And to see the resilience trickle away from the spirit that is America has been very hard to grasp, I think, constructually. Uh, Dr. Cole, because I don't know uh, when else I'd have the chance to ask you this question, but uh, I've I've just been so curious about your uh, feeling about Fauci's article that came out late late last week in Cell, Cell Magazine about the vaccine, which basically says, "Well, we knew it'd never be uh, that good. Uh, you know, it's, it's we don't can't really vaccinate against coronavirus in this generation, uh, but maybe we can do it in the future." Did you have a look at that article, and did you have any? Uh, sense you know, of it? I have not read that one yet. To be you know frank, I I will uh, dredge it up. I've I've been on the road too much lately, and uh, in fact, I've, I'll have to leave here in a few minutes. I'm speaking in the Bay Area tonight with uh, Steve, Steve Kirsch okay. and Josh Yoda, a couple other people. Well, but listen, I will, let me, I will look let me just say, out, Jeffrey, because... Yeah, please, <clears throat> please do. And I, I'm, I'm quite desperate for somebody uh, with more expertise than me, uh, than I have, to uh, write a commentary oh, I on love it. To I mean, I personally... In fact, I know it. I owe you a text. I apologize. I'm so far behind on everything but listen (laughs) if you read it and and you just want to bang out like four paragraphs you know just your first i mean 
I'm quite desperate to have an expert comment. comment. Yeah, I could write something myself, but I'm just not. I'll make a mistake, right? So, but you, world's probably top person to comment on this article. Just burn through it. Write your reactions. Please just send it to me. Let's get it out there. Let's do it. Yeah, I'll do that tonight after my uh, presentation tonight. You see how this works, ladies and gentlemen? Science and communication in real time. This is great. I love it. And and this has honestly been one of my protests from day one. The moment the the powers that be said, oh, we're going to have warp speed and a vaccine, with my training, my history, background in immunology, virology, pathology, I said, wait a minute, you can't vaccinate against coronaviruses. I knew this from day one, and that's when I knew everything was off kilter and tilted the wrong direction. Because biologically, just understanding this family of viruses, I knew right away things weren't going to head the right direction. And certainly now the data has borne out that it didn't work and we did head the wrong direction. And, you know, I'm not here to say, oh, you know, I told you so. I'm not I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is if science had been allowed to have the conversation without censorship, we would have never gone in this direction as a society and on this massive scale making a decision that impacted so many lives so adversely. So this is this is a great topic you bring up, Jeffrey, and I'd be I'd be honored to write a, a commentary on that and I will do Oh, that's just that's just brilliant. I'm so glad to hear that. You know, to, to these two Fauci articles kind of serve as bookends to our whole three years of hell. You know, the, the August uh, 2020 Cell article in which he called for a new infrastructure of human civilization or whatever the heck it was. And then and then there's one that comes out last week that said, oh, yeah, we knew we could never have a vaccine against the coronavirus. That's that's always been ridiculous, you know, for the following reasons. <laughs> I mean, okay. I, I just, I'm, I'm kind of out of words at the, this point. <laughs> well, and the unfortunate thing is they they continue to push this 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 agenda, though. And you were seeing it in places pretty heavily, like here in California. And again, like I said, I think it's this weird kind of sleight of hand where they're they are not being forthright. They're saying we're going to take away the the state of emergency, but at the same time, they're not taking away the EUA. They're not talking about the fact that these are still not FDA approved because they do not have the proper information on them. I think we now know the data is is clear that these are extremely dangerous. Uh, we're seeing terrible effects in the in the pediatric population, but yet we're still seeing this narrative of go out make sure you get your kids vaccinated. And it's amazing to me that it's, it's, it's very, very clear that this has never been about public health and safety. And no one is talking about the fact that these do not stop the acquisition and transmission of the virus. Well, even, even yeah. more so, um, the simple fact that the variants for which these are coded are extinct. The Wuhan variant went extinct almost two years ago. BA4 and BA5 comprise less than 1% of any circulating virus now. And they're still pushing, get a shot, you know, get your shot. Why, why would I get a shot for something that's extinct, it, it, that doesn't exist? And, and I like that Jeffrey, you know, brought up the point about, you know, okay, we knew this wasn't going to work, blah, blah, blah. Well, it's, it's very akin to Fauci's holy grail of an HIV vaccine. Well, here we are 40 40 years later, there still isn't one and never will be because HIV has a different spike protein, uh, but it always mutated ahead of vaccinal efforts. And if he were a true virologist, he should have admitted from day one, okay, coronavirus is also 
will mutate ahead of vaccinal efforts. And it's still frustrating, like I said, to have two, three extinct variants coded for in a shot that's basically purposeless. And now, especially to this pediatric population or anyone under the age of, I don't know, 185, now it's all risk with zero benefit. Over. I completely agree. I, th I think, Jeffrey, I just added the gentleman that you were speaking of as a speaker. Oh, maybe not. Oh, okay. Father, he must have, he probably went off to say evening prayer or something like that. I don't know. Okay. 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 <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. You know, this, this whole, this is why I was very excited to do this event with Aaron tonight, because um, this is to me, the root of how we got to where we are. I mean, we, we can, we can, there's probably more, I mean, we can talk about the prep act and, and how the prep act has been an incredibly da dangerous piece of legislation, but this concept that um, we have, have suppressed doctors, the, the medical community's ability to engage in informed medical decisions between the doctor and patient relationship, also from doctors to engage in um, their ability to gain the proper information. You know, I ask this question all the time. How did the, the, the medical community go along with this? And I know um, I've gotten a lot of feedback and I'm sure Ryan, we, I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Um, but I think in large part, the medical community went along because the information was being suppressed and um, the government had a major, major role in driving that. Very much so. And I think you bring up a great point. Most doctors weren't informed and they couldn't give informed consent if they weren't informed. And in the history of medicine, you can ask any practicing doctor, how often do you call up the FDA, the CDC or the NIH for advice on how are you going to treat a patient? Never. That's not what we do. They have certain regulatory jobs and that's all they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to set treatment policy. They're not supposed to set treatment guidelines. FDA, is a drug safe? Yes or no? Okay, it's approved. And their job is safe. And then off-label prescribing happens all the time. When it comes to CDC, they're a disease monitoring agency. That's their job, report on morbidity and mortality and, and let people know what's going on. NIH put funding into research, which... They haven't been obviously putting funding into the critical harms and what we've been experiencing. So it's been very frustrating to watch uh, so many very intelligent colleagues. I mean, medicine still is and should be a noble profession, but to watch so many of them like ostriches, I can't hear you, I can't hear you, put their head in the sand. You know, those of us who have been saying, okay, here's the risks of what we're doing. It's, it's been, again, appalling to see so many just wonderfully gifted individuals, highly intelligent, buy into a construct that was experimental and then push it upon their patients as though it should be trusted. And I, I, still, don't, I still don't understand how quickly and how easily so many people were, were duped into this uh, mindset. And it's very frustrating. And still, you know, I get attacked, Aaron gets attacked, so many of my other colleagues get attacked for sharing the actual harms, the actual science, the actual mechanisms. Um, look, I'm, I'm willing to be wrong. That's, that's where you learn in medicine. I've commented before, there are two things that make up a great doctor, and that is caring and curiosity. 
And we certainly lost curiosity amongst many of our colleagues in medicine over these last couple of years. And I, I, I don't understand why. And then that caring aspect, when everything became an algorithm and a patient was just to be treated with this protocol instead of treating the patient in front of you, that was also a great loss that we experienced over the last couple of years. And so we're, we're in a, a strange conundrum now and trying to resolve this. And hopefully we're little by little waking others up to, um, to this new view that, okay, maybe we did something wrong and maybe we should admit it. And there's humility in that. And I like to joke, you know, a lot of doctors think MD means minor deity and it should mean make a difference. <laughs> and so that's, I, I think we, we still have a big problem in medicine and hopefully this will be a lesson uh, and unfortunately, it's been a very physically tragic lesson for many people's bodies and lives. But hopefully it'll be a lesson to not repeat the mistakes of these last couple of years. Thank you. You know, Dr. Dr. Cole, you mentioned the, the FDA as having a you know, valuable role in the past and, and, and trusted. And the CDC, which also had a similar role and, and, and earned uh, trust over time. Another institution uh, in a similar situation was the World Health Organization, you know, which gained so much uh, credibility uh, through the leadership under Donald Henderson with the eradication of smallpox and, and having this, you know, sort of um, this role of serving, especially developing countries, with uh, essential public, you know, uh, health services and that sort of thing, and and there, all these institutions that that we trusted that that had gained all this trust, and it was all sort of weirdly squandered. I mean, the World Health Organization um, in February of uh, 2020 recommended to the entire world that they lock down just like Wuhan, China. <laughs> yeah, throwing out all their pandemic plans and squandering all their credibility they had earned over so many decades, and just threw it all away. And just like it, and and at the same time, the CDC, you know, went along, and the FDA, with all of its uh, uh, approvals, uh, and even driving out some of its best scientists and so on. It's just been such an incredible era of of uh, betrayal. Uh, during which time we've we've learned things about the world we never wanted to know, and we're we're kind of like in in a lurch now. You know, we've been so betrayed, so lied to by so many people, and the loss of trust in in medicine and science and politics and essentially all areas of of, of public life today is just devastating, and it's not good. I mean, I you know I'm. You know, but the libertarian in me is, you know, was supposed to be glad to see the loss of trust in government. But actually, a society without trust in anything or any institution and in anybody, do we really want to live in that world? And what comes next? I mean, what, you know, what kind of world are we building where we don't, we can't trust corporations, we can't trust medicine, we can't trust science, we can't trust academia, we can't trust... Um, any prominent institution or think tanks, it, 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 it just go. It, there have been so many astonishing failures, um, uh, really a kind of a shattering. Uh, and I worry. I worry about what's next. I know there are so many people that are working to sort of rebuild, but but the 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 job that's in front of us is 
is awesome and overwhelming, and I assume it's going to take basically the rest of our lives. Well, I would bring up sorry, Brian. He brings up some excellent points, and I think it's this incremental creep of um, financial interests that have taken away the independence of these once, you know, decent organizations, uh, all of them three-lettered. So over time, just watching the financial bending and twisting. There's a great documentary. I want to say it came out in 2017 called Trust Who. And it it goes through how bought the WHO now is by pharmaceutical companies. And we know that our regulatory agencies, not just in the U.S., but in many nations around the world, are regulatorily captured. And so you bring up a great point. You know, who do we trust? And, And it's it is discouraging in a sense, but this is where independent oversight without financial ties needs to be brought back in, uh, you know, as, as independent auditors looking at studies, looking at what these agencies are up to without any financial ties. That's the key. So, I mean, you bring up an excellent point and I, I you know, I always try to bring the optimism, let's not give up hope, but at the same time, part of not giving up hope is getting involved and making the changes that we, we do want to see. So your, your point is well taken. I am going to unfortunately have to sign off here. I've got to go to a presentation. But it, Thank, thanks for a joining pleasure Ryan. to join you guys. And Jeffrey, I'm going to write a couple paragraphs for you in response and I will get my homework done. <laughs> so, yeah. so grateful to you. Dr. I, I want to get, I want to get to uh, Dr. Kat Lindley as well. Kat, thanks for joining us. Um, I saw you in the audience and wanted to, uh, give you the opportunity to speak out, but but also Jeffrey, what I would say, I know I know sometimes it feels um, incredibly disheartening, but I do think that there potentially will be a silver lining to this, and that um, what COVID has done is allowed us to peel back the layers and realize the just how much of our personal freedoms we've ceded over to the government, but also really the the corruption that has been occurring for so long. Um, and the lack of transparency and lack of accountability. And so I think we're, we're kind of on the cusp right now where we can actually change the system in a, in a positive way. No doubt there needs to be a lot of rebuilding of trust um, in, in, in particular in the medical community. Um, I personally am one that's never really trusted government. I'm, I'm of the adage of the Ronald Reagan adage of, you know, if the government shows up and says they're here to help you, it's oftentimes a pretty scary proposition. That being said, um, I, I, I was a big, um, I, I had a lot of faith in the medical system and, the, and in particular medical practitioners. That's something that we're going to have to do a lot of work to rebuild trust in. Um, Kat, did you want to jump in before we close it out here? Yes, I was actually just going to listen, but then uh, I think uh, there is a bigger picture that's missed by most people. I've always seen this through different eyes because of my personal history. It's never been about the virus. It's never been about this pandemic. It would have been something else, you know. Uh, RFK Jr. said, uh, wrote about climate change. Could that be next set up for the pandemic type of response? It's always been about this, this, you know, they were just waiting for something to actually institute some of these totalitarian policies they already had within all of our systems. And uh, it's always been about control and the actual lockdown and then eventually the mandate. Because we have given up so many freedoms to try to feel safe and that was the actual goal. 
it was really an attack on freedom of the individual people because that's what happens. You know, these things cycle through history. You have this authoritarian style um, rules and, you know, totalitarianism, fascism, communism. It always comes down to this trying to control. And you talk about WHO and what Ryan mentioned in 2017. WHO went from being funded by member countries to really being funded currently more by these private partnership organizations. So you have uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who is number like six on their uh, funding, on their donors list. You have Gavi Foundation. They came through WEF and the funders for Gavi Foundation is Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So this is all kind of convoluted. It's really never been about the virus. I think we all, uh, you know, we talk about censorship, uh, physicians not responding properly, lawyers did the same, churches did the same. The, uh, they knew exactly how to come at us from different angles. And I think we need to look at this more. And that's why I actually enjoy Brownstone articles because they look at this from different angles. If this is not a medical crisis, this is not legal, this is not only economical, it's all of our crisis. Our civilization, as we know, it just collapsed as soon as they they said, you know, this is going to happen to you, you're going to die, you're going to lose this, you're going to lose that. So, so through fear, they were able to control our lives. And every time we complained, you know, I was at the Mendes, I know you were there in D.C. as well. What RFK Jr. said is true. Every time he said yes, they took away a little bit more of our freedoms. Now getting it back, the only way we're going to get them back is actually through legislature. But as we see, the process is broken. So in my opinion, there are many things we will never get back. But we need to remember who we are. No matter what, all these systems fail because ultimately people want to be free. The question is how long it's going to take us to get there. That's all I had to say. I, I totally agree with you, Kat, and I'm sure that, um, that that Jeffrey probably would add to this. You know, it's uh, one of my favorite sayings by Benjamin Franklin, and I'm sure I'm going to botch it right now, but something to the effect of um, those that would give up a little bit of safety for freedom deserve neither safety nor freedom. And um, I can say as, as someone who is very much grateful to be an American citizen um, and believes very much in the con Constitution. It is tragic what we have seen over the last three years. And no doubt, um, this is not about public health and safety. I think it's, it's so clear at this point. Jeffrey, did you have anything that you wanted to add before we, we well, wrap it up? Well, no, but except to, except to say that and there is a weird sense in which I've, I am actually enormously um, optimistic right now. Um, for one thing, I feel like we all kind of were living in an illusion in 2019. There were, there were storms were already growing, and I didn't see them coming, really. Um, I never thought this kind of stuff would be possible in the United States, much less in most all countries of the world. At the same time, so that this level of corruption we'd see from big tech and corporations, it's like the, the, the whole thing has just been a shock. On the other hand, I'm glad it's been very uncomfortable, obviously, and tragic for many people's lives. On the other hand, I'd rather know the truth than not. 
And I do think that as hard and horrible as these three years have been, that we are now laying the groundwork for a much better foundation. Um, I don't want to advertise Brownstone, but I have to tell you that uh, my mother is the one who named it. And she named it because she had a sense that we had to start over, you know, uh, and the stone that built America in the 19th century was brownstone. It was the, the stone that built all the churches and all the civic uh, centers. And uh, malleable stone was cheap. It was long before there were skyscrapers that were made of steel. Everything was made out of brownstone. She said, we're, but that's what we have to do now. And so <laughs> that's why I took that very interesting insight and, and named the Institute after it. But I, I feel like we are in that rebuilding process. But the thing is that it is happening. You know, the Unity Project is just out of nowhere, right? Just like, wow, okay, Unity Project saves all these great intellectuals, gives them a home. Uh, you know, I mean, like, wow, that's, 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 that's the way to step up. That's the way to act. And, and I've met all these wonderful, great minds, principled minds, the people who have been tested by the hardest times ever, and, and they've come through. And they've been bold, they've spoken out, and they've named, maintained their, their calm and their, their scholarship and their determination and their courage. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. All my new friends, all these new institutions, all the, all the donors who have stepped up, God bless them all. Um, we're, we, I feel like in a sense, whatever comes out on the other end of this, we're going to be better off than we, we were before all this happened because it'll be a generation that's been tested and put through the ringer and um uh and and shown and 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 learned i've learned my god i'm a different person now than i was three years ago for sure we all are um but we're stronger we're wiser uh, we're clear-headed we're more humble but we're also a little more ferocious than we used to be in the past, right? More determined to make a difference, more determined to do what we do with excellence and precision and scrupulosity and determination and moral conviction. So that can't be a bad thing. So I'll leave it there. I think that was a beautiful way to uh, wrap up this Twitter Spaces event. Uh, couldn't agree with you more. And I'm so honored to um, and privileged to be at a point where the Unity Project is able to contribute to changing what's happening in, in society and, and in the world. And we hope to uh, move the needle forward and, and really make an impact. So uh, it's, it's an absolute honor uh, Jeffrey, to meet you and to have you contribute on this Twitter Spaces event. I'm sure you and I will have an opportunity to speak further. Uh, and if Dr. Ryan Cole can still hear, it's an honor to have you on. And Dr. Kat Lindley, you as well. Um, so thank you so much for participating this evening. And um, we will be on again, not next Tuesday, but the following Tuesday. So thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful evening. <laughs>